0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 20, Health Reform. Last time we talked about the influence of the Civil War in the Church and the critical decision the leaders made to encourage Adventists not to join the war as combatants. They took a path between pacifism and encouraging fighting as the best way to avoid killing and breaking the Sabbath. The easiest solution, now, was raising money to pay the government a hefty fee to avoid military service. And if you couldn't afford that, then joining the medical side of the war was encouraged. And that leads us to where we are today. The Advent Review published an article from a patriotic northerner on the status of army hospitals toward the end of the war the review carried it for the sake of those avenus who couldn't buy their way out of service and so volunteered for the medical service this northern patriot described a leisurely and ordinary day in an army hospital breakfast at 7 lunch at noon dinner at 6 and after the nurses go off duty at 9 p.m. he writes the lights get turned off and quote, "then come the night watchers in silence for hours together sometimes" There is the stillness of death when you can hear the tread of a mouse, and yet amid this stillness there is a vast deal of pain, quietly and uncomplainingly borne by the noble fellows who suffered in battle. God bless them for their heroism in the field, and for their equal heroism on their weary couches." Quote. Now, if you know anything about medicine in the Civil War, you're not buying this though it is rather telling that the author believed the soldiers needed just as much courage in the hospital as they did in the battlefield. There's some truth to that, because medical care in the North and the South was atrocious. Let me give you a brief rundown of what they may have experienced in any given day. Iron pots were in short supply. So sometimes the cooks cooked the food in the same pots they used to boil lice-infested clothing. So, yay, Doctors, and they use that term loosely because the standard to become a doctor early on in the war was basically that you claimed to be one. They thought that when pus formed on a wound, it was a good sign. So they would take the pus from one soldier's wound and transfer it to another soldier's wound, which just happened to spread the infection. Sharing is not always caring kids. Toilets were often dug too close to streams at times, and I don't think I need to tell you what that meant. And finally, amputations. Those were the way to go. On the Union side, if you were wounded in your arm or leg, they would amputate about 20% of the time on a good day. Thankfully, 75% of the amputees survived, at least for a while. Unfortunately, you were likely to undergo the amputation on the same table that dozens of other people laid on before you, and it was seldom cleaned. So you just lay there in other people's blood. And the surgeons who performed these amputations, they often had lots of blood all over their clothes, and that was the sign that you were a good surgeon, right? If you didn't have blood in your clothes, they would assume you were inexperienced and no good at it. And anyways, they didn't know anything about germs, so that really just made it worse. To be fair, Civil War medicine got better as the war went on, And the war itself was a bridge between what historians call the heroic age of medicine, that of bloodletting and making people vomit and giving them mercury, and sort of a proto-modern medicine that led to what we have today. Eli Lilly, a union captain in the war, ended up founding the first modern pharmaceutical company a few years later. No one did more for pharmaceutical medicine than Lilly. And today you can buy Prozac thanks to him. There were a lot of reform movements in the aftermath of the Second Great Awakenings. The abolition of slavery was a big one, reform of churches, reform of education, and especially health reform. So the Civil War didn't start the emphasis on health, but it sure drove home the point that, wow, we're pretty terrible at this medicine stuff. I mean, nothing wakes you up more than the reality that two thirds of all deaths in the Civil War were from disease, not combat. I mean, if you got shot, you might as well hope it kills you, because if it didn't, you had a good chance of dying from something much more painful in the hospital. It's no surprise, then, that Avenis also awoke to the need for better ideas about health in the middle of the war. A few weeks after the church officially organized in 1863, Ellen White had a major vision about health. She later wrote the basic paradigm that was revealed to her, quote, between the mind and the body, there is a mysterious and wonderful relation. They react upon each other. To keep the body in a healthy condition, to develop its strength, that every part of the living machinery may act harmoniously, should be the first study of our life. End quote. That is, there's this connection between the physical and the spiritual. This is a holistic view of human beings. When our health is poor, it's hard to focus on God. Ellen White said that there are laws of health which, when broken, insult mankind's creator. She believed that there was a moral obligation among Christians to take care of their bodies and their minds. This vision was a watershed moment. If you know much of anything about Seventh-day Adventists today, you know that a good chunk of them are vegetarian. And it all started with this vision. Now, being a vegetarian isn't a rule, as we shall see. But pursuing good health is a vital principle. The 1863 vision covered a number of topics. Here are the highlights. Temperance was a byword, and it usually meant not drinking alcohol or using tobacco. But the vision broadened this understanding. Temperance came to mean exercising moderation over how much you eat also. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. White learned that environment affects health also. Living in a swampy area can lead to illness. Getting sunlight and exercise is important also. Oh, and lots of sugar is bad. Fresh fruit and vegetables should be eaten more than meat. And speaking of meat, don't eat pork. And finally, don't be a workaholic. You need balance in your life, and this one was the hardest it seemed for them to learn. You cannot appreciate this vision, looking back from the 21st century. Because most of this is what doctors have been telling us for a long time, right? But many Americans back then were told that fresh fruits and vegetables were often diseased and that meat was a much healthier food. Common practice at the time didn't value fresh air, as sick people were often kept in dark, stagnant rooms in the early 1800s. And this was in an age where Oliver Wendell Holmes, a professor at Harvard, dryly remarked that you could chuck all the medical knowledge up to that point into the bottom of the sea and, quote, it would be all the better for mankind and all the worse for the fishes, end quote. So there was this widespread realization that medicine just wasn't cutting it. If a surgeon had a 50% success rate, he was considered intelligent and qualified. Medicine simply wasn't much of a science at this point. So on the one hand, we shouldn't look at this vision as if it only revealed what everyone already knew. The contents of this vision caught everyone off guard, even Ellen White. It was a revolutionary moment for her because it contradicted a lot of things she believed about health. On the other hand, we shouldn't go to the other extreme and think that all of this was new and no one had ever thought about getting exercise being a good thing. As I said, Health reformers came and went in the early 1800s. There was no one bigger than Sylvester Graham, however. He came to have a huge impact on the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he never knew it. Today, we have the Atkins diet and a buffet of celebrity diets, but Graham's diet was the first brand-name diet. Sylvester Graham was a Presbyterian minister whose health teachings helped him rise to be a minor celebrity in the 1830s with his Graham diet. The rules of his diet were simple. Abstinence from alcohol, take baths as often as possible, brush your teeth every day, don't eat processed foods, be a vegetarian, avoid spicy food, and eat whole grains. Graham was one of the first to point out that white bread was nutritionally useless, which is what every mom has told their kids since. How Wonder Bread rose to prominence is anyone's guess. Oh, and he also hated black pepper, which somehow became a rule in my Adventist college, for which I will never forgive Sylvester Graham. Graham published cookbooks, and his followers set up boarding houses in various cities so that travelers following the Graham diet would have a place to eat. Graham established a medical journal and packaged brand-name food he sold in stores. By today's standards, some of his ideas were kind of out there, but a great many of them have become common sense. But let's not mistake that back then, They were groundbreaking. Oh, and graham crackers are named after him, but since they're so full of sugar and high fructose corn syrup, he'd probably go on a murderous rampage if he found out. So rest in peace, buddy. There's not a lot of direct evidence that Graham influenced Adventists, but it's clear that he did. Joseph Bates quotes Graham in his autobiography about why it's good to give up coffee and tea, but this was really after the fact, since Bates gave up these things long before he had heard of Graham. Ellen White, however, was emphatic that she hadn't read any literature on health before her vision, and it's easy to believe her. Avanus had had toyed around with health for a long time, but mostly it was against alcohol and tobacco, with tea and coffee getting an honorable mention. On two occasions, Avanus suggested to Ellen White that eating pork was wrong, but she brushed it off each time. Now she had a vision, realized they were right. This wasn't something she had been considering for a long time and finally made a decision about. It hit her out of the blue. Now, I should say that it didn't just hit Joseph Bates, of course. Bates gave up alcohol and tea and stuff in the 1820s, so he's been ahead of the curve for 40 years now. When it came to social reforms of a moral nature, Bates was almost always decades ahead of the rest. He had the Sabbath first, he had health reform first, he had abolition first. But try as you might, you can't force a growing organization to see things the way you do. It took time, but the church came around. So hang in there, Bates. Graham would impact Avanus in one more way. Decades after Graham's death, the son of J.P. Kellogg would develop granola, an update to Graham's bread recipe. And when the granola craze died out after for a few decades, it was brought back in the 1960s by another generation of Avanus. You're welcome, America. All these health ideas were good and all, but they wouldn't mean much without the final thing that was revealed in the vision. Ellen White believed that Seventh-day Adventists had a duty to proclaim health reform to others. Now that idea got off to a slow start, because Ellen White was painfully aware that one vision did not make her an expert on health. Like I said, it wasn't an area she had read much about, like most of us. A few weeks after the vision, she was traveling with an Adventist doctor named Lay, and by that I mean he taught himself medicine, for the most part, as many did back then. Ellen was nervous about saying too much about the vision, but a few points slipped out, and the doctor was intrigued, and invited her and James to his home to talk some more. Dr. Lay began to show her medical journals, which taught the same things that she was saying. There were a few skeptics who said, yeah, Ellen White secretly read all this stuff and pretended it was from a vision. But she told Dr. Lay that, quote, I had never seen a paper treating upon health, end quote. and we have no reason to doubt that. She had the vision in front of people, as usual, and if Ellen White were a scam artist, this would be the lamest scam ever perpetrated. She didn't get money or power or respect or anything that a phony would normally want. Besides, She had a vision in 1858, where she actually rebuked some members for insisting that anyone who eats pork should be kicked out of the church. She thought that was extreme then. The historical record indicates a sudden event which completely turned her around, not a calculated strategy. And like I said, she didn't even want to talk about the vision afterwards. Hardly the action of someone devising some kind of scheme. And maybe one of the clearest reasons why we can suggest that Ellen White's vision was authentic was because of how it impacted her life. Practicing what she was preaching wasn't easy. I have thought for years, she wrote, that I was dependent upon a meat diet for strength. When she didn't eat meat, she felt dizzy and faint, she said. And she didn't much like bread either. So in an age before meat substitutes and soy and tofu... The prospect of a vegetarian diet without strong spices was kind of not inspiring. You don't have celebrity chefs with bright, colorful vegan cookbooks and all of that. There was no internet to learn exciting ways to cook asparagus. Your selection of fruits and veggies was limited to where you lived and the season you lived in. Product of Mexico? Yeah, okay. Ellen said she forced herself to go without meat, without butter, to eat things she didn't much care for. She was like her own mom making her eat her veggies. She wrote quote, I suffered keen hunger. I was a great meat eater, but when faint I placed my arms across my stomach and said, I will not taste a morsel, I will eat simple food or I will not eat it all. When I made these changes I had a special battle to fight, end quote. Pure discipline. Those hardcore Victorians, right? Ellen White wasn't extreme, however. She ate meat from time to time in the rest of her life. In the 1870s, she, James, and Willie were more or less stranded in the Colorado wilderness, waiting for someone to come bring them supplies. In the meantime, they hunted duck and even got a bit of deer to survive. Okay, so it wasn't a matter of, I'd rather starve to death than eat meat. Ellen White would call herself a vegetarian, and for her, that wasn't a principle. The principle was health vegetarianism, at least 99% of the time, was the application of that principle. She later wrote that, quote, I have never felt it was my duty to say that no one should taste meat under any circumstance. To say this would be carrying matters to an extreme, end quote. One exception to this was pork, which Adventists gradually grew to realize was always prohibited by God in the Bible in both Old and New Testaments. Of course, Joseph Bates already knew that. He had given up meat for 20 years now, but he's not going to say, I told you so, because Joseph Bates is a gentleman. Today, it's hard to say how many Avenus are vegetarian, under 50% perhaps, but this really isn't the point. The mission to be healthy is the point, and not healthy for its own sake, but as a holistic vision of the human being, that as we are physically healthy, we are sharper mentally and spiritually as well. The mental The emotional, the physical, and the spiritual are all connected. And we have a duty to God, Ellen White believed, to keep those aspects of us in good form. It was, and is, a simple matter of taking care of God's creation. This wasn't a diet, it was a reformation. That's why it's called health reform and not the Ellen White diet. And this health reformation made a big difference among generally poor Adventists who are constantly battling illness. Illness means less days at work, which means less money, which means more poverty. While Ellen White was mastering this change through sheer force of will, she took her family, along with Jan Andrews and some other Adventists, to Danville, New York, to see a Dr. Jackson. Jackson ran an innovative alternative water therapy institution interest in frequent baths to help cure minor illnesses was kind of a trend that emerged from Sylvester Graham's larger movement, and Ellen White was curious to see this firsthand. Water therapy didn't work miracles. It primarily owed its success to the fact that traditional medical approaches were just so terrible. So by virtue of the fact that it didn't kill its patients, it was marvelous. It also owed its success to Jackson's broad approach. It wasn't just about taking baths. He made people get fresh air, plenty of sunlight, exercise, daily toothbrushing, and a wholesome diet. Along with bathing frequently and staying clean, most people were just bound to have better health. James and Ellen appreciated Jackson's approach, even if they didn't buy into all of his ideas. They persuaded Dr. Lay to go and work for Jackson and learn what he can. After Ellen White choked down fruits, veggies, and bread... She realized she learned to like it. She felt better, she was sick less often, and only then could she talk to others about it. In January 1865, nearly two years after the vision, she released a series of pamphlets on various health topics. She wrote some of it, but a large part consisted of quoting prominent doctors who advocated the same concepts. There are tons of recipes for boiled rice, wheat meal, gruel, pumpkin pie, and of course, Graham Biscuits, named after, guess who? Seriously, Sylvester Graham? Well played. This had to be one of the more enjoyable committees the church ever set up, because 12 ladies were tasked with the idea of experimenting with various recipes and coming up with a bunch to print in these pamphlets. So yes, best committee ever. The transition wasn't an easy one, however. James suffered a mini-stroke in 1865, at only 44 years of age. Ellen cared for him as best she could, but she ultimately took him, Loughborough, and others back to Jackson's institution for better recovery. Some Avenists criticized her for not trusting in God to heal him, but while Ellen White believed in prayer, she also believed that God intended people to seek the best medical advice around, and for her, that meant Dr. Jackson. Loughborough and other overworked Avenists took advantage of this situation, too. It turned out that eating in moderation was easier than working in moderation. And Adventists paid even closer attention to Jackson's operation this time, too. And it slowly began to dawn on some of them that, hey, we could set up a place like this. Ellen White officially proposed the idea at a joyful Sabbath meeting back in Battle Creek the next year, 1866. James's recovery had taken a long time, but he reported that Sabbath that he had finally been able to sleep again after nearly a year of not getting more than an hour or two each night. This was now three years after Ellen White's main vision for health reform, and she thought it was time to take the next step. Health was an important part of the Adventist message. It would later be called the right arm of the message, in fact. It was important for people to treat themselves well and to be fit and ready for whatever God had for them to do. Pamphlets with recipes and tips on healthy living was one thing, but this needed to be institutionalized. It needed to be part of Adventism's core DNA. There needed to be a place where the sick could be cared for like Dr. Jackson did, but without some of the weird parts of his operation. There needed to be a place where Adventist doctors could be trained. People would come to this place and be healed and educated, and then they would leave and go back to their homes and say, hey, those Adventists are on to something. At least that was the idea. Everyone, and I mean everyone, was caught off guard when Ellen White dropped that bombshell. Hey, let's open an institution like this. Some certainly wondered how a church of 4,000 people could possibly fund such a project. But that's kind of been the theme so far, hasn't it? Since James was still convalescing, the logical choice to lead this enterprise was the Michigan Conference president, who was John Loughborough. Loughborough prayed about it, and in the end agreed to venture out in faith. He went to one of the few Adventists with money, J.P. Kellogg, and basically told him that you have more money than the rest of us, so if you're not in this thing, it's going to sink. Kellogg grabbed the paper that Loughborough was holding and wrote $500. There it is, Kellogg said, sink or swim others donated in suit, and the place opened in a few months. The press issued a new paper as well called The Health Reformer to be edited by Dr. Lay, who also took up a leadership position of what was now being called the Western Health Reform Institution. The institution was off like a rocket, being filled to capacity in a matter of months. Dr. Lay and others wanted to see a $25,000 investment raised to make a colossal compound out of it, but Ellen White demurred. Ironically, people were now moving too fast in health reform for her. Mainly she was concerned about this becoming too much of a business and not a ministry. She wanted to see the profits reinvested in helping patients who couldn't afford to come rather than building grander and grander buildings. We are reformers, Ellen White would shortly write, She already had her eye on other ways the church could bring reformation. First, they pushed for abolition. They helped out with the Underground Railroad. Then they pushed for health, and they built this health institute. The church would next drive into another area they had no experience in whatsoever, education. And the result would be what is now the largest Protestant educational system in the world. And for once... Joseph Bates didn't think of it first. It took a certain patient at the Western Health Reform Institute to get that off the ground. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in 7th Avenue's History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October, 2024. So if you wanna go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at Avenue'sHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website, you can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.